Well, uh, good morning. The good news is I don't think I have any, um, we're talking about the Sabbath a little bit, but I don't think I have any fire in my presentation. The magic people, I'm not sure, but uh, hopefully we'll uh, thank you. Uh, and, and thank you, first of all, uh, Professor Stern. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you, Georgia. Uh, I feel like I'm an honorary Englishman this month because uh, after I leave here tomorrow, I'll be back in Cambridge in about a week and a half for another conference, so I have to change my accent. Um, uh, but I'm learning all kinds of interesting things, and uh, uh, it was worked out very nicely, and I really appreciate uh, how everybody got me here, and we found our way, and everything is, uh, is very well, and it's nice to see you. Some of you I know very well. I hope to meet others of you, and I think I know some more of you, too. We may not know each other face-to-face, -face, but that's part of what the day is about. So Sasha's quite right. Even though I'm going to be speaking largely about Jewish law, this popular culture question with all the problematics is an absolutely burning question for those of us working on that side, too. Um, although I've published some stuff in Magic also, I said to uh, Caitlin, I said we could have done a whole, uh, we could have made each other disappear here. But anyway, um, uh, in seriousness, um, one of the things that I have a couple of doctoral students actually working on aspects, too, um, even on the rabbinic side of things, uh, on the popular side, um, if we take Northern Europe, uh, in the 12th and 13th centuries, which is where we'll be focused this morning, what we call Ashkenazic Jewry, primarily northern France and Germany, um, one of the interesting problems and questions is how can we learn about what the people were doing? Um, uh, in the United States, we have this cute phrase. I don't know if it goes here. We talk about the Jew in the pew. In other words, what was the average person who was part of the community? The community is much less complex than they are today in many ways. How do we get to learn about those people? Say, well, we'll look at archives. Uh, archives for uh, Ashkenazic Jewry are um, uh, very few and infrequent. Uh, calendars are a great access point to that, and you know we've been enjoying the fruits of this group's labor and other people who are working on calendar issues. Um, we don't have writings by the popular. Uh, levels, at least not too many. Uh, I will tell you, I could probably mention her name, but I'm sitting with a book, uh, a big book, uh, Sefer HaMa'asim, uh, from manuscript uh, that are popular storybooks uh, from this period, from exactly this period. I will recommend absolute publication immediately in its full plenitude, and we'll have another important resource, but um, we're still short. Uh, it's a little better for Spanish Jewry at this time, although uh, not great. There is more archival material. Uh, at one point, uh, the late professor uh, Yom Tavasis, who wrote on uh, Spanish Jewry during this period, northern Spain, uh, during, again, 12th and 13th century, quite a bit. Um, at one point, there's a responsum, or a series of responsa, from uh, Ibn Adret, Solomon Ibn Adret, perhaps the leading figure, leading rabbinic leader in late 13th century uh, Barcelona, um, and he's writing about uh, marriage arrangements, about the Shiduchim, and he says that in our area, thankfully, no child has ever refused her or perhaps his parents or grandparents' choices. So Yom Tov Asis very correctly goes through archives that you have in Spain that you don't have in the North, and he says, I found a few refusals. Now, he's quite right, but the fact is the few refusals do nothing to shake the essential uh, picture that Rashbah had drawn. And so what I'm going to do with you today, and this is sort of how we're trying to push the envelope forward in the absence, and I hope we can talk about it, in the absence of terrific popular sources for their own culture, 
to what extent can we use rabbinic literature, you know, very technical rabbinic literature at times, to what extent can we use this literature to really get at what the people are or aren't doing. Now today we're going to be talking about the interface in terms of law and practice, but this works for a lot of other things. Uh, a number of years ago I wrote a, uh, an article, uh, there's an English version, a Hebrew version, uh, on literacy amongst medieval, Jew, medieval European Jews, and I set up a comparison again between North and South. Um, if the Jews, you know, if the popular layers or levels didn't write much, so how do we know? And the answer is, as I try to indicate in terms of the methodology, we can get from the rabbinic literature of the period a very precise, not just a theoretical we think, we get a very precise assessment of forms of literacy, and here it's a question of literary memory, you know, how do you define literacy, and all kinds of other things, but however scholarship, you know, Carruthers et al., however they'll define memory kinds of issues and how that relates to literacy, you can get a pretty good barometer of what people know based on what their rabbinic decisors are telling us. And the story in the northern uh, area is somewhat different. It's not radically different, but it's somewhat different than what you have in Spain. And you can at least begin to put forth an argument. So I'm going to try a little more of that today with you. Um, and, and, and so I hope that uh, uh, I also, uh, when Sasha told me science, I said, well, my guys would love to say that they are scientists. I don't know if we would, but the, the figures that I work with, and they are, it's a male bastion here, nothing we can do about that. Uh, from the medieval perspective, um, but uh, uh, there is a science here, and, but what we will see is, and you always have to correct for, well, maybe the rabbis are saying one thing and the people are doing something else, but that's the point, as you'll see. The rabbis, in this case, seem to have a pretty good idea of what the people were doing or not doing, including when the people were or weren't listening to them. And so it doesn't appear to be construction, it appears to be you know, fairly on the ground, and let me not talk so much about it. Let's get right to the material, and uh, we can see uh, uh, as we go. Just as sort of a fulcrum or a focal point here, um, uh, David Malkiel uh, wrote a very interesting book in 2009. Um, I'll give you some lecturing, and then we'll do some text. So, uh, but and I don't know what your preference is, Sasha. If somebody has a, a you know question they think would be important to address. You know, media race. I'm okay with that. If you think it's worth stopping, uh, you know, I won't. I won't criticize. I like to be stopped. I like to do monologues, but I really like to hear uh, from the audience too. So uh, um, I, I speak slowly as I do. So I get a lot of words in, but you can, you know, um, the slowly was a, not literal. Anyway, um, in 2009, uh, Malkiel uh, wrote a wonderfully interesting book called Reconstructing Ashkenaz. Yeah, it's already a big undertaking. The Human Face of Franco-German Jewry, 1000 to 1250. And what Malkia wants to do in that book, it's a, it's a very ambitious agenda. He wants to revise the view that during this period, um, uh, uh, Ashkenazic Jewry, uh, the, the regnant view, the view before Malkiel, uh, was that Ashkenazic Jewry as a whole, and again it's a general statement, we'll talk about it, was more pious than its Sephardic counterpart. In other words, Jews in northern France and Germany, in western Europe, in these Ashkenazic centers, we're not going to talk too much about Italy today, but in that area, uh, were sort of demonstrably more pious than there in terms of religious response and behavior, and Malkiel wants to sort of even the playing field. Um, and he does this in a number of different ways. Uh, the first part of the book uh, is really based on uh, martyrdom and reactions to challenges to faith. 
Uh, very interesting stuff. That's a little bit hard to do because the question is whether martyrdom, obviously it tests the core of the people, but it's also not something, and I'm gonna say this carefully, uh, it's not a daily occurrence. Uh, unfortunately, it's all too frequent in this period, but it's not something that you can sort of day to day talk about martyrdom. That's not what they were talking about either. But so that that's interesting, but I'm gonna stay away from that today. Um, toward the end of the book, um, he relies very heavily, uh, Malkiel does, on um, tracing uh, sources in Northern Europe. And here we're dealing with a, a group of scholars that some of you know well, others probably not, and that's okay. Uh, a group of scholars called the Tosafists. Uh, no fists involved, but uh, those who compose the Tosafot, the glosses of the Talmud and the halakhic writings in this area, successors, students of, continuers of Rashi and a whole different method here. Um, and Malkiel um, takes a very interesting uh, strategy. The strategies are great. I'm going to argue some of the conclusions, but the strategies are great. I'm going to take his strategy and turn it the other way, as you'll see. Um, there is a Talmudic principle of Mutav shiyu shogigim, when people, when the, you know, sort of masses, the popular group, not the scholars, are doing something in terms of Jewish law that does not seem to be permitted, and they're doing it as a regular practice. They've come into some kind of popular practice. And I'll give you examples. At some point, the Talmud says, this is the Talmudic period, at some point the Talmud says, it's a uh, Talmudic passage toward the end of Tractate Beitzah, better to let people sin unwittingly, don't tell them that they're doing the wrong thing here. Because it's something very common, it's something that the popular, you know, has the popular vote, and, you know, it's some kind of a misfiring, we'll have to see why exactly and how, and I'll give you examples, better to let them do it. Obviously, the stakes can't be that high, the, the transgressions involved can't be uh, uh, terribly severe ones, but better to let them go, let them do uh, what they are doing, don't make them willful sinners. That's the Talmudic principle. Um, and what um, uh, Malkiel does uh, is he says, this principle was invoked uh, not infrequently in Northern Europe, just as it was in Spain, and he suggests that therefore what the uh, Ashkenazic rabbinic elite are saying is really no differently than the Svartic rabbinic elite. Our people have these very same kinds of issues, problems, and the popular religious level of observance is therefore uh, very similar in both places. So again, this Ashkenazic myth. Uh, yes, but in, but in, please. You're talking about piety, and you're talking, it, I can be very pious, mm -hmm. but, but observe the Judaism, which is not quite as defined by... Right, right, so, right. so I, here, here I thank you for, for that comment. That's why it's good to make it. Not talking about what's in the person's heart here, talking as much as how are people conducting themselves. So we're talking about practical observance of Jewish law of halacha. Right? So again, right, these are not cast, the, the rabbis here are not saying that people, and we'll see not at all, the rabbis are not saying that people don't mean well, the rabbis are not saying that people don't intend to be pious. What they're saying is they're missing points of law or points of observance. And here Malkiel is saying there doesn't seem to be much of a difference between the North and the South. Uh, I'll give you his examples, I'll give you some more examples, and I'll give you my strategy, and we'll talk about how this goes. So that's an important comment. Now, the problem is that, and I, again, I don't mean to criticize my friend Dave Malkiel too much here, but the problem is that, um, that's not the point, the point is to get to the, 
the methodology and, and, and the conclusions, um, the Malkiel doesn't compare the two groups side by side. In other words, if you're going to try to do this thing methodologically, you've really got to show how did these rabbis operate and what are their conclusions? How did these rabbis operate and what are their conclusions? What he does is he says, we know that Sephardic rabbinic leadership used this principle quite a lot. We find that Ashkenazic Jewry also uses it in very specific ways, and therefore there's a kind of an equal, uh, an equilibrium here. And I want to show you that quite to the contrary, and here's the point, if we can get into this rabbinic literature in a very close and uh, analytical way, we will find that there are some very interesting differences which prove quite the opposite. Namely, that the Ashkenazic rabbinic culture's assumption is that there are practices that their people are doing that do not come up to their standards or that do not come up to their conclusion in terms of Jewish law. But that doesn't mean they're completely wrong. Whereas it doesn't simply mean that the popular culture here has just gone the wrong way and people are not observing. Whereas on the Spanish side, it's much more simple. They're not doing these things. And therefore, we better not tell them, though, based on the Talmudic principle, again, that since these are not terrible transgressions of Jewish law, better they should be unwitting. I'll give you the examples, and you'll see. I should point out, by the way, you may have read Chaim Soloveitchik um, has, has written some criticism of Malkiel in terms of what he... Uh, Mal- Malkiel uses the term deviance, religious deviance, also fraught <coughs> with problems. I don't want to get into this too much because I don't think that's the main point. Uh, Professor Soloveitchik has observed that um, uh, you know some of these issues, how do you define deviance? It's really what, what Sasha is asking too. What's at stake here? Uh, I'm going to give you some very down-to-earth examples. Uh, women wearing... And Balkiel, by the way, focuses on women. He says the women were particularly notorious for not observing. Mm-hmm. Okay, again, these are, these, this is the evidence. This is not... I'm not uh, looking to make a problem with that, and I'll give you, I purposely have a couple of men's examples too, or both, just to be uh, completely uh, uh, fair and open on this. Um, uh, Salvechik's expressed the concerns with Malkiel's uh, assessment of what is deviance. Again, that's not my problem today. It's, it's a fair question. Um, and, and can you talk about martyrdom and observance of sort of basic precepts in the same breath? Again, uh, you know, Obviously, there are a lot more things involved in one than the other, but that's not, that's not my problem. I'm going to keep it very much on the ground level. Um, the other thing that Malkiel does, and, and again, just to give him credit for pointing it out, um, what Yisrael Tashma had suggested a number of years ago is that the reason there seems to be a difference between Ashkenaz and Sfarad in terms of observance is because Ashkenazic Jewry has... The term extra Talmudic is not exactly precise, but Ashkenazic Jewry had traditions of Jewish law that are not necessarily based on what we know as the Babylonian Talmud, right? The uh, sort of major or the more widespread of the two Talmuds. A very difficult statement, but I'll explain if somebody asks what I mean by that. Um, and Tashma says the difference here is that Ashkenazic Jewry has a tradition in Jewish law that differs from Sephardic Jewry, and therefore there are practices in Ashkenaz that don't have a Talmudic base, which their rabbinic leadership allowed. 
In Svarad, they stuck more, certainly as time, you know, from the beginning to, uh, of, the, of the group, as time moves forward. Uh, in Svarad, they were more concerned with, you know, this Babylonian Talmud Jewry, in other words, which is where they're from. They're from the East and so on, Babylonia, Muslim world, Babylonia to North Africa to Spain and many stops in between. Um, and that will account for the difference. Now, Malkiel uh, quite rightly points out that it's very hard to find hard evidence for this uh, construction that Tashma wants to uh, impose, and I don't disagree. That's true. What I want to do is just show you simply, on the ground, in the 12th and 13th centuries, Ashkenazic Jews are looking at what the people are doing, and they're saying, when the people are not observing certain aspects of Jewish law here, there are different levels of that non-observance. There's a higher level of non-observance, and I'll tell you what I mean exactly, and a lower level. Whereas amongst Sephardic Jewry, when the Spanish rabbis comment about non-observance in this popular way, there's no sense that the people have sort of a mind of their own. In other words, well, I shouldn't say that. There's no sense that the people have any sort of higher intention here. They think it is permitted. No, for them, they think it's permitted. We think it's not and therefore mutav shiushokim. Again, uh, I've got a bunch of examples, and I recognize that uh, many uh, may not be so adept at Hebrew, so I will tick off the sources as I go, uh, but the audio portion will cover those of you who are not adept at reading Hebrew, so don't worry. I was going to translate all of this, but then it would have been a 42-page handout, So I uh, and Georgia would have prepared it, because she got this all done. I didn't carry a shred of paper with me, but um, just gave her the... Uh, the material, um, but let, let me take it off as I go. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of Malkiel, a little more specifically, and then I'll turn to my material. Um, so Malkiel, for example, tells us the following, and we'll see these examples ourselves in just a moment. Uh, Malkiel mentions that uh, Isaac Orzarua, a leading uh, mid-13th century, first half of the 13th century authority, who studied in both northern France and Germany, and that will be important for us too, to what extent that both these areas have the same policy, uh, or Zorua held as a matter of law that women may not wear jewelry in the public domain on the Sabbath. The problem is that according to uh, technical Jewish law, one may not carry on the Sabbath unless there's an Eruv, right? We get into all kinds of interesting controversies, ancient, medieval, and modern, and people have written about that, but that typically speaking, uh, a person may not carry something in a non-enclosed area in a public domain on the Sabbath. So Orzarua says, therefore, women may not wear jewelry on the Sabbath because there is genuine concern that they may take the jewelry off to show it off, right? There's this concern that jewelry was meant not just to be worn, but it was meant to be shown. And so Orzarua said, as far as I'm concerned, women shouldn't be wearing jewelry. However, he says, as quoted by Malkiel correctly, in our days, the permission of this practice has spread everywhere, and they will not listen and will not believe us, the rabbis, to desist from this practice to which they've become accustomed. We rely on the principle of better they should sin unwittingly than wittingly. Right. Again, the point being, if they're wearing jewelry, that's not the same as carrying something sort of you know, by hand. It's being worn. And the stakes, if I can say that in terms of Jewish law are not as high, so we let people do their, uh, uh, do their thing. Um, and he says, if we tell them, they will not accept it. So we, you know, it's a, it's a zero-sum game. However, he says, whoever is able to warn them to be careful, more power to them. So, you know, try, but don't really try. 
Uh, and what Malkiel does is he, again, correctly cites several earlier authorities in Germany, uh, particularly Eliezer ben Nathan, who we're going to see here, of Mainz in the mid-12th century, and others who say something similar without invoking all of the principles. Okay. Um, nonetheless, as Malkiel also notes, uh, Eliezer ben Nathan does also employ the principle of better to sin unwittingly, and so on, with regard to women braiding their hair on the Sabbath. Again, the technical issue, as we'll see, we won't get into it too technically, there's a prohibition against building, as it was done in the tabernacle. These are the laws of Sabbath. So building means you can't, you know, even if you prepared the material, you can't line up rocks or bricks and, you know, mortar and like they're doing here, just build all over. You can't do that on the Sabbath. This gets extended by rabbinic law. Braiding the hair was considered in some way, sort of piling it up, with my hair you can't tell, sort of piling it up, right, is a kind of rabbinic building on the Sabbath, and the tradition was, or the, the legal tradition was, not to allow it. Says the women are braiding the hair, we can't stop it, they've got to braid the hair, let them, you know, better they should sin unwittingly. Uh, another example that's quoted also in Northern French sources, just to show it's not all German, all the Germans will dominate our discussion, um, a form of a popular form of entertainment, again, forgive me for women and children, as it's quoted, was to play with nuts on the Sabbath, to roll nuts along. A medieval game that is attested to in general sources. Don't have to be it wasn't a Jewish game, it was a general game. Um, and the problem there has to do with making furrows in the ground and other such things. Again, women and children do this, but the women are the focus here. Uh, don't tell them it's really prohibited because they won't listen, and so on and so forth. So Malkiel's conclusion is there are, there's acknowledgement that women are doing the wrong thing and that the rabbis are in no position to change their practices, and this is the same in the north as it is in the south. So his conclusion, and again, I'm, I'm doing it briefly, but I think I'm doing it fairly, his conclusion is that popular religious observance in medieval Ashkenaz was also somewhat lacking, to say the least. What I want to suggest here, and again, I'll tick off some of the sources so we, and we can look if people would like to look more, but let me give you the argument. Um, what I would like to suggest here is that, in fact, if you look at these sources very carefully, the use of this principle, mutav shiyu shogim, better to sin unwittingly than to have them sin, sin wittingly, was used by Ashkenazic rabbinic decisors in two ways. They have a two-tier system as opposed to the Spanish approach, which was simply, as we just said, the women aren't doing it, they don't know any better, leave them alone. Right? It applies to men sometimes too, don't worry. But it, it, you know, Malkiel brought up the women, and again, a lot of the cases involve the women, um, so we're going to spend a lot of time there. Uh, I have some male examples too, again. I don't think there's any difference whatsoever in terms of the theory of the law here. Um, and we'll see that... that uh, <coughs> The, the higher level of this principle suggests that if people are doing something which these Tosafists don't like in terms of technical Jewish law, that is because there had been some justification provided in the past and the people are not with the times. In other words, the Tosafists, one of their jobs, one of their main jobs, and this goes back to fundamental studies of, of these rabbis, what they're doing in the 12th and 13th centuries is testing everything against the Talmud, right? Tashmah had said before Ashkenaz didn't so much use the Talmud in this way. By now, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud is supreme. 
in what the Tosafists are doing. And if you know anything about the Tosafists, you may know they have all kinds of interesting policies about lending money and interest and how can Jews lend to other Jews. It, technically, even though Jewish law prohibits it, uh, issues of doing business with Christians on Christian festivals and so on. The Tosafists, part of their dialectical method was not just to reconcile divergent Talmudic texts, but to reconcile practical law and custom, practical uh, applications, with what seems to be the Talmudic requirement. Right? So what happens here is the Tosafists look at some of these issues anew, and they conclude that practice X or Y is technically prohibited. The people, though, are sticking with their original practice. Here the Tosafists say what I call highbrow mutav shiushogim. Let them keep doing it because they do have something substantive on which to rely. We don't think it's correct in terms of our elite analysis now anew of Jewish law, but the people have some precedent, some notion that this thing, this practice is permitted, and therefore to start sort of, it's almost like a kind of a, I don't the word modesty is the wrong word, but it's a kind of a, a restraint here. These are, again, practices where, in terms of Jewish law, these are not horrible violations in any case. Right? These are not the most, you know, these are not heinous crimes. This is not stealing or, or anything like that. Let them keep their old practices because there is something to base it on. That's level one. That's the higher level. We do find the lower level. But again, there's a whole analysis here that they conduct. And so at the end of the day, this two-tier Ashkenazic system, which gives the people a lot more credit in terms of observance. Right? The people are not as mindless as, and again, they don't mean it personally, but it's not as by rote as the Spanish decisors uh, suggest, as we'll see. That precisely suggests the same principle that Malkiel is using to equalize the two groups precisely shows that, in fact, the older view, the regnant view, that the observance approach in Ashkenaz on a popular level is higher, uh, should remain in place. Let me give you some examples of, of how I came to this, and we'll take a look. If you look at the first source, again, I'll give you the English uh, translation, um, uh, there's, the question is women wearing the, their rings on the Sabbath, right? specifically signet rings or rings of other types. So uh, Eliezer ben Nathan, mid-12th century in Germany, a mind says as follows. Nowadays that women do not wear signet rings, in other words, we're not so worried about rings which are used for commercial purposes or for economic purposes. That's not the problem here. And both men and women wear their non-signet rings for beautification, right? which again, technically is not a Sabbath violation. He says it appears to me um, uh, permissible, it's not absolutely prohibited, for these rings to be worn. And he says, here comes the key line, it is from here as well that the Rishonim, that our predecessors who came before us relied, who were wiser scholars than I am, and did not protest their women wearing rings on the Sabbath. Since they are ornaments for the weekday, they can be ornaments for the Sabbath as well. And the same thing with regard to silver keys that our women carry as an ornament. It seems they relied on this as well. Ravan then adds, that's his uh, acronym, that our towns and villages are not such great public domains. Um, but what he's saying here is that even though technical letter of the law, he and others think that wearing of rings should be a jewelry problem, 
right? Since the people have something on which to base what they were doing, something from their unnamed predecessors, and Ravan can't put a name on it. He can't. He won't and he can't. Right? Mutav shiyu shogigim. Better they should sin unwittingly. But this is what I call the highbrow mutav shiyu shogigim. The people are not simply saying, you know, we've been used to wearing rings and therefore we're going to continue. What the people are thinking or saying or can be given, given credit for thinking and saying is there was some earlier permission, right? There was a rabbinic view that allowed this. Therefore, when the second rabbinic view comes along, these rabbis will sort of give the people the benefit of the doubt, right? This is this higher level, you'll not find a single example of this in Spain. With the point being that the assumption of the rabbinic decisors, and now, of course, you can ask the question, well, how do we know maybe the, the Spanish rabbis were just tougher people? I think not. I'll talk about that a little bit more. Right? It seems the Ashkenazic side of things, the people are given more credit for a sense of what the rabbinic leadership is telling them. And here I'll invoke a, a beautiful phrase, two phrases from my Vat and Jacob Katz, Yaakov Katz. Kfifale um, samchut. The assumption is that Ashkenazic Jews, in fact, have a little more, um, uh, they, are, they are literally, uh, uh, you know, um, more beholden to authority. Right? They have a little more, not just a matter of respect for authority, they follow the rabbinic authorities a little more closely. There's a, you know, he's not comparing it to something else, but there's a connection. And here you almost don't have to be a Hebraist. Cass, the second expression in this regard was they had a great, Ashkenazic Jews had a great, what he calls, instinct rituali. Ritual instinct. Right? So give the people credit for, they won't just strike out on their own and say, oh, it must be permitted. No, it's not a matter of people here sort of making up their own story. People are following some earlier rabbinic approach, and that's not the same thing as people saying, and I'll give you the Talmudic example in a second, well, we don't see the problem with this, we think it's permitted. It's much more thoughtful <laughs> than that. Second example, Ravan. Yes, please. Interrupt. Please, I interrupt. Are they really giving them credit, or is it just a policy to avoid conflicts and to gain their allegiance? Right, very good. So one can raise the question, right, exactly this way, right? It's a much more, uh, it's a much friendlier, <laughs> it leads to much better relations between the rabbinic authorities and the, the people. I would say that except there is also a type 2 in Ashkenaz. It's not as prevalent. And so it sort of begs the question, why are they distinguishing? And it can't, and again, you'll have to take, you know, the technical points will have to be taken as I give them today, but it can be shown. Um, th there's a very fine calculation here. So it's not, if the rabbis have a policy, they can apply the policy, you know, pandemically. And what, what distinguishes it always is, is there a sense of predecessors or is there a clear sense of what the earlier justification was versus we really don't see any justification at all. And what I'll show you in a couple of minutes is that's how they explain the Talmud as well. So they think this is really a matter of, this is not a matter of their own policy, it's a matter of categories of law that the people apparently are at least in some way aware of in some, again, ritual instinct kind of a way. But we'll come back to this question, but, but that's, that's the answer for now. Second case about braiding the hair on the Sabbath. Again, Ravan says, women are accustomed to doing this, the earlier procedure, the earlier sages who preceded us saw them doing this, did not try to stop them. 
Okay, so again, maybe they're just being polite. He says, it seems to me they did not protest since the women cannot affix their ties, the hair adornments, unless they pile their hair in this manner. As such, leave the women to be unwitting. Do not inform them of the problem, right? We don't want them to violate more willingly, uh, more, more purposefully. And although one may say that by tying the threads around their hair, they are not thereby building their hair. It's not a matter of sort of piling and braiding. Um, he says, this is, you know, just this wrapping is not building. He actually says that tzitzit, the ritual fringes which are wrapped, you can't do that on the Sabbath either. But here the point is, he's giving a way out. What he's saying is that the predecessors apparently, the ones who apparently didn't protest earlier, relied on the fact that wrapping the hair is not the same as piling or building the hair. Again, there are predecessors involved. We can at least think about their reason. The people, therefore, not that the people are all such legal whizzes, but the people, therefore, have something which, again, instinctively they're relying on, leave them alone. And, again, uh, he's thoughtfully, what he's saying is the predecessors thoughtfully considered this problem. They may have had some technical things on which to rely. And, uh, again, the people do do as... um, as well. So uh, uh, even though Ravan doesn't agree, as he thinks this, this allowance is defective, but he says uh, the key here is this is not as Malkiel had defined it, you know, simpler want and favor to respond by the uh, failure to respond by the women or fear that the rabbis wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be listened to. Um, uh, look, I, I won't talk too much about it because I want to get to the other examples. In number three, here's a men's example um, not traveling by boat too close to the Sabbath. And here there are issues of, will you be able to leave the boat on the Sabbath? Where are you for the Sabbath? And so on. And Ravan again, says that earlier authorities had some ways to allow this. For people, apparently, you're dealing with people living along the Rhine River. They're going from Mainz to Worms. They're not going, you know, it's the Denmark issue. They're not going, uh, you know, uh, where people are going by water taxi. They're not going, uh, you may have it here too. They're not going very far. Um, they had certain uh, ways to do this. Um, uh, but interestingly, Ravan even gives a third reason, and I sort of summarized it in my own writing on this, in this particular case, that when, when one boards a boat for the purposes of trading, conducting business, this constitutes a mitzvah. This is a, a proper act, right? Uh, earning one's livelihood properly is itself a precept, and that would allow uh, for this kind of a leniency. So again, Ravan is saying there's a leniency that was prevalent in earlier times. He doesn't know it precisely, his own view is that it still should be prohibited, but since people have done this, let them, they're aware of these earlier leniencies, let them continue to do it in this way. So those are the first three, but now in cases four and five, I'm sorry, actually, uh, four and five are the Talmudic cases, it's cases six and seven, I'll come back to four and five. In, four, in six and seven, uh, Ravan says something else about this principle. Um, in his halacha commentary to the Tractate of Nida, the laws of the menstrual woman, and the practices associated there, um, he decries the uninformed practice, as he puts it, by which a bride who had had her menstrual period just prior to marriage is permitted to immerse herself as soon as the period ends without having to wait the additional seven clean days uh, following the cessation of the menstrual flow that married women are technically or typically required to observe. Um, in this case, Ravan says, part of the problem is the violation that's incurred is a more serious one. Um, and that's part of his reason for uh, you know, ramping up his effort 
to stop this practice, but he also says that he, he points out very clearly there's, there was never any rabbinic approval for this at all, and that's important to him. He says, I have heard that people are lenient in this matter. No rabbis, right? No Rishonim, no Kadmonim, not our predecessors, someone. He can't identify them in any case. Here he says, I've heard that people are lenient, meaning this is a move that the popular practice has allowed, and we can understand why they would. It's a lot easier to wait shorter to go to the mikvah, which will permit relations between husband and wife, and this is a bride, so it's, you know, there's a, there's a great urgency here. Um, but the key for Ravan here, in addition to the level of punishment, is that he's heard that people are lenient. So here when he says, right, better to let them sin, sin unwittingly, two things happen. Number one, this is the lowbrow, or the lower version, I don't mean lowbrow, but the lower version of this principle, people really don't have a leg to stand on. It's a problem because if we tell them what they're doing it wrong and they continue to do it, and we don't think we can get them to stop it, but here he also says you should try. Because again, if it's a, a practice based on something in the past, the need to try to stop it is less critical. If it's something with no real basis, and again, don't tell them, but if you can do something, try to do something. So both those factors happen. The same thing in number seven, and this is an easier case, different aspect of ritual immersion. Um, again, the, the punishment here, or the... the oh, vi- second, I don't see where he says that you should let them do it. What's that? Number yeah, number seven, he tries to say, six, well, he's... No, number six. six. he doesn't say let them do it. He says, he says in fact, it's not like the Tosef at the Yom Kippur where you say let them do it. Yeah, well, so that's, so that's right. But, but in other words, good. He's trying to say don't do it, but I'm going to come back to this Yom Kippur. It's still in the category of things that people do. What I want to say here is people do it commonly without, it's almost by second nature, there's no thought. I'll come, you're correct. I'll come back to the Yom Kippur case in just a half a second. You're correct, uh, Israel, I'll come back. Um, uh, uh, in number seven, uh, this is a, 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 you know, a, a sort of less serious immersion problem. The problem is immersing in a pool of water where, which is filled via a series of pipes and the mikvah has all kinds of technical requirements to be fulfilled, to be filled primarily through rainwater and so on. And for Ra'avan, this particular uh, a mikvah is a little bit too attenuated. Um, but here he says, right? Better to let them do it unwittingly, right? And he doesn't mention again, this is what the women were doing. Nobody really. Uh, 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 approved it. Right? It doesn't seem to have any rabbinic approbation. So again, he says, all right, we'll let them do it here because, as Israel's pointing out correctly, the, the, the sin, the violation, as it were, is not such a large one, you know, even if it were done intentionally. Um, but again, he's not giving any credit to any prior authorities. The people are simply used to doing it, so you know, handle it with some kind of care. Now what's interesting is if you go back to 4 and 5, the Ravan actually claims that within Talmudic law, there were these same two categories. There, there is already this distinction. Um, as you just heard a moment ago, um, the classic case, there are two, well, there are two different types of cases of mutav shiyu shogigim, better to do it unwittingly in the Talmud. The first involves people who eat right up to the beginning of Yom Kippur. You know, people are nervous, and they're eating to the last minute. They're not eating on Yom Kippur, but they're sort of eating up to the boundary. And in fact, one's supposed to add a little bit. Okay, people are just, they're nervous. They're eating. 
And the Talmud says, even though they're getting to a line, since at this point they haven't crossed the line, you know, uh, the French expression is, don't drive me crazy, right? Uh, don't, don't, don't bother, right? You know, let them let go, right? The other French expression is, let them go. Let them go. Okay, fine. Again, there's no justification. That's all. There's no justification. But it's popular. It's instinctive. People are worried they're going to starve. It's hard. It's difficult. People are, people are fasting on the day itself. Let them go. That's one type. And there's another, the other example that Talmud gives there at that point is somebody sitting on the Sabbath right near the boundary of a private uh, domain and a public domain. And so it's almost going to happen, you know, that an object will somehow go, you know, you knock over the, the pot, knock over the glass, and you go, up. Oh, got to get it. You go into the public domain, you pick this thing up, you bring it back into your domain. Technically a Sabbath violation. But that's how people sit. They're not sitting in the public domain. You know, there's some kind of a patio here. They're not sitting in the public domain and walk, running around with the glass. It's a completely, you know, common... Uh, habitual, you know, habit kind of uh, maybe habitual too, but a habit, and so that's what the Talmud says, Mutav Gim Type One, and that's what the Ravan talks about in Source Number Four. Not much past that in his in his commentary to Tractate Beitzah, but these are halachic commentaries. Ravan though says there's another type that the Talmud points to, really in the same place, but there's another category. That's a little bit more interesting. Again, this is a real rabbinic law. You've got to think long and hard on this one, but that is that you're not allowed, based on a Mishnahic statement, to clap and dance on the Sabbath, lest those participating in the clapping and the dancing come to fix a musical instrument. You're providing music, so music is a, is a big problem. So if it's just singing, it's fine. You're not going to send yourself to the shop for a voice tune. Uh, but if you're clapping and dancing and moving, right, that's a lot of movement, even though it's technically permitted on the Sabbath, we're concerned lest things get out of hand. Right? Now here, Ravan says, there's a difference. This is a different kind of mutav shiyu shogigim. Why? Because, again, first of all, so very often uh, weddings were celebrated on the Sabbath. In fact, very commonly in Germany at this point, the wedding happened on Friday. It's a catering thing, you see. Uh, you can save money. The Sabbath meal becomes the wedding meal. Perfectly, perfectly cricket and perfectly reasonable. Right? So lots of weddings, lots of wedding celebrations happen on the Sabbath. Now, you can't have the brass band, according to technical Jewish law, on the Sabbath. Right? Right? Again, because you'll fix the instruments and all of that. But you can have clapping, dancing, and so on, and it can be very nice. This, though, again, technically, the Talmud says, the Mishnah says, don't do this kind of extensive activity on the Sabbath, singing yes, clapping, dancing not, but people tend to clap and dance. There's a wedding. Tell them the rabbi said no clapping and dancing. Tell the rabbis, you know, get a life or whatever it might be, right? We can't, we can't abide that. We just can't. I know these, these narratives are mine, not the Talmud, but, right? We can't abide that. Says Ravan, in this case, again, it's technically mutav shu shogim, but of the other type. Namely, our predecessors, he says, we do it today too, and our predecessors didn't step in and protest, since again, it's a rabbinic violation, but he points out, interestingly, in the temple itself, rabbinic violations were tolerated on the Sabbath because of the mitzvah, the higher precept of running the temple. Here too, the celebration on the Sabbath is a mitzvah. Again, we saw that before. 
if it's a mitzvah, even though this positive precept involves some violation, therefore our predecessors said, this is not this kind of unknowledgeable habit kind of a thing, I'm eating too close to Yom Kippur, I'm sitting too close to the public domain. Give the people some credit here. They're trying to do a mitzvah, and therefore we will not force them to stop. Right? Interestingly, by the way, uh, Avigdor Katz of Vienna, uh, we've gotten his, um, uh, uh, the successor of Orzarua in Vienna as the rabbi of Vienna uh, in the mid to late 13th century. Um, uh, 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 Avigdor Katz, Kohen uh, Sedek of Vienna, ruled that such a practice is in fact permitted a priori. He says, our righteous women, Nashim Tzitkaniot, uh, had this custom of clapping on the Sabbath. Uh, by the way, I, this you know, for your for your price of bringing me over from the states, I think this will be worth it. Uh, Avigdor, I hope I don't know. Avigdor Katz, if the rest of it wasn't, Avigdor Katz um, also says about Nashim Tzitkaniot, and that's the only such statement we have that righteous women mitzat us. Few selected righteous women uh, wore talit and tefillin as well. That's the only such statement. Everything else in the medieval context is so and so's wife made the, the tzitzit, so and so's wife did this, so and so's wife did that. Uh, Avigdor Katz has a thing in a very positive sense for Nashim Tzitkaniyot. These righteous women are very punctilious, right? They so what Ra'avan is saying, I wouldn't allow in the 12th century, but there must be an allowance because there's a mitzvah, it's okay. Again, let them sin unwittingly. In the 13th century, Avigdor Katz permitted it. So you see, it's something that you know, rabbinic minds here could argue about. Okay, so uh, again, I think we've established these two different types of response to Butav Shiyu Shogigim, and this moves forward to these texts, just as my time is moving forward. The Ra'avan's grandson, you'll tell, still say like, like grandfather, like grandson, maybe, but others do it too, um, in sources 8 and 9, um, 10, 11. Um, Raviyah, Eliezer ben Joel Halevi, his grandson who dies around 1225, um, ex- makes exactly the same type of distinction. Uh, in source number 8, there's an issue of women improperly sealing wine containers, right? Big problem in the Middle Ages, Jewish wine, right? Want to preserve it from uh, uh, contact with Christians and all kinds of discussion about that. Uh, women apparently were not so careful. They were the, you know, whether it's that they, they're, they're involved here or this was their practice. Uh, women uh, did not properly seal the wine. Um, here he says, uh, you know, we can't stop it. There's no real basis for it. That's what I call, again, the lower-level type. However, the same Ra'avan, um, in Numbers 9 and 10, goes into a whole discussion about the hair pieces and about other Sabbath issues, and he says, even though we don't allow it, and again, it should be Mutav, if they're going to keep doing it, let them do it unwittingly, right? Nonetheless, and in fact, his own father prohibited this very, uh, very strongly, um, uh, we, you know, here there are those who permit it or who have permitted it. So again, this is that higher uh, level. Uh, number eleven actually is one of my favorite quotes here. Um, here was another ritual bath problem, and again, according to, Ra- to Raviyah, not fully consonant with the halachic requirements. Right? Um, he says, but there's something on which they base themselves. So let them go ahead. But here he says, Hanachlahem, let them do it. It may not 
If they're not prophetesses themselves, the women, they're the daughters of prophetesses. You know, they're junior prophetesses, right? In the sense of Maimonides, you know, Navi, they're, you know, prophetesses in waiting. Right? They grew up with plenty of scholars around them. They must have asked the rabbis a question. So somebody must have allowed this. I don't think it's permissible. Somebody must have allowed it. He says, in fact, my father was in a place with this type of mikvah, and I didn't hear, or uh, 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 my father-in-law, uh, no, my father, and he, uh, he did not protest, and so on. So again, this is a type of mutav shiyushal hanach lahem. They're not doing the right thing, technically, according to me, according to, not just me personally, according to our analysis, based on the top of Bible, and so on and so forth, but allow them to continue because there's something, um, something behind it. Okay, um, and this goes on. I want to get to the Spanish side. This goes on um, in, in some of the uh, in some of the later texts. Um, now there were Tosafists in Numbers twelve thirteen. If you go over to page three, there were Tosafists um, who did say that certain practices just again aren't permitted, and we have no way to permit it. Uh, that has to do with that rolling the nuts on the Sabbath. On the other hand, there's a case in Germany where they say, we don't permit it, but Rabbeinu Tam did. So if he permitted it, but again, they say, according to us, it should be prohibited. But since Rabbeinu Tam allowed it, mutav shiushohigim. Again, that's the point here, Sasha, that they're assuming the women know something. You know, the people know something here. They actually, if they haven't checked it in a technical sense, there's some kind of an awareness. And this goes on, again, these same two. Um, interestingly, there are times when some of the people, uh, Rabbeinu Tam has students um, who don't go along with some of his own allowances in this regard. They say, look, it seems to be prohibited according to the letter of the law. How can we say uh, but again, at this point, we'll have to uh, uh, skip a little of these in the interest of time. There is one great one where um, some students of Rabbeinu Tam say, well, but wait a second, um, uh, Mrs. Tosafist, Yudasileon, her husband told her not to do it. You know, so privately, some of these rabbis told their own wives, don't do it. But that's not what they told the, the women themselves. Okay, if you go to the Spanish side here, and I'm going to just bring it all together, if you go to the Spanish side here, even though we're talking here in the 13th century, uh, scholars such as Nachmanides, who was uh, born at the very end of the 12th century, but flourishes in the 13th century, dies in 1270, Rashba, Ibn Adret, who I mentioned before, dies around 1310, Ritva, who dies in 1325, um, they know all kinds of Tosafist material, right? If you look at Nachmanides, you know, difference between Maimonides and Nachmanides amongst the tens of salient differences, Maimonides for obvious reasons has no exposure to anything Ashkenazic not even, you know, nothing uh, Shama Friedman has tried to argue very cleverly that when Maimonides revised his Mishnah Torah toward the end of his life there are a couple of pieces where he may have been trying to argue against Rashi. So maybe Maimonides, sitting at that point in Egypt, had a couple of words or some pieces of commentary on some tractates from Rashi. Maybe. Maimonides is zero Ashkenazic influence. There's zero. Southern France, he knows. Northern France, Germany, has no idea. Nachmanides, hourly in his Talmudic commentaries, you know, moment to moment, the rabbis of France say, and he either agrees, disagrees. In fact, even in his Torah commentary, although he tends not to name names, right? He's got a 
medieval form of non-citation, um, there's not a little bit of northern French exegetical material. I say to students, I say it here too, uh, you want a wonderful doctoral dissertation, it's not a life's work, uh, in Nachmanides, go line by line in his Torah commentary, is the line northern French, southern French, or Spanish? What's the, what's the influence here? And the answer very often is yes. In other words, all of the above, which line, you know, and you've got to go almost, and not that he doesn't have any of those lines, but tremendous influence in northern France. On this point, they have no idea about this highbrow version of Mutav Shishogim. For them, it's all, they're doing the wrong thing, but don't tell them because we, you know, again, it's not so severe, they won't listen, and so on and so forth. There's no attempt whatsoever, you can go piece by piece here, there's not a single attempt to come up with some type of uh, uh, sense that there were prior authorities who allowed it, or the women asked the question, or the men did this. There's no sense whatsoever. In fact, one of the great permissions in terms of the jewelry that we talked about, Nachmanides says in number 24, Elu divrei havai, you know, balderdash. Don't like, you know, the rabbinic attempt to explain why this is justified, Nachmanides will be having uh, none of it. And again, it's not simply, I don't think, a case. Um, yeah, by the way, number 26 is what we find in a Ritva. Um, Ritva again rejects these Ashkenazic things, and he's the one who says Ritva has a very good, uh, again, tremendous knowledge of what's happening in the North, tremendous knowledge, much more than either of his predecessors. He's the one who says, Mrs. Eunicerion didn't do it, Mrs. This one didn't do it. And that's, the rabbis in Northern France couldn't have meant that. Oh, but they did. Now, just to wrap it all up here, in number 27, there's a remarkable quote from the Ritva, which we don't have in his own Talmudic novelle, but which is quoted in his name in a source that has a lot of his material, where he says, he cites a German authority of high standing, Heid Ritva b'shem Rav Gadolme Ashkenaz, Sheid b'shem Rabotav Hatzarfatim, who in turn cites northern French practice, and he mentions two names, Ri, Isaac of Dompierre, Rabbi Tom's nephew, and Harav May Rothenberg, the rabbi of Rothenberg, that's Mayor of Rothenberg, that they said, in our day, we don't apply the principle of mutav shiyu shogigim, because we have enough, we permit enough things, don't let people off the hook. Now, what does Ritva mean here? What Ritva means here, and I didn't have time to develop all of it for you, but some of it's on the sheets, amongst northern French and German authorities, first of all, you'll say French, why is Mayor of Rothenberg a Frenchman? So first of all, France for Ritva, it may mean Northern Europe, but second of all, Maharami uh, Rutenberg did all of his training, all of his training in Northern France. In terms of Talmudic and Halachic material, he's a Frenchman. In terms of magic and mysticism, he's a German. But in terms of, uh, I, I, I think, but in terms of Talmudic studies, he's a Frenchman through and through. So there's this French protest group, they don't like this principle. In fact, if you go through carefully, and I've got the Maharam moving forward, Ri and Maharam did not like this two-tier system, right? So they're saying the only type of mutav shiyu shogim that's around is the defective type, the inferior type, there's really no basis. And so they're saying, try not to stick with this. They're trying to make a kind of a, of a revolution here a little bit within Ashkenaz. But it works very well. The two names, I mean, Re could be somebody else, you know, Reish, Rabbi Yud, but Ritvan knows his, his people pretty well. It's hard to imagine that. Um, and so he's saying there are these authorities who, like us, 
don't want to provide any justification through this principle. Forget highbrow, lowbrow. There is none. And again, I, I skipped over some of Marie's good examples, Maram's examples you have here, and that leads me to the final text. As kind of a, the final piece is kind of a test case, and with that I conclude. Um, we have an interesting test case. Sweeping the floor on the Sabbath. Sweeping. Problem again. Medieval floors, medieval architecture, dirt and so on, you know, not dirt, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, clean it out, but literally dirt floors and so on and so forth. There's a controversy here um, uh, about whether sweeping is permitted because it's not a not work, it's not creative work, it doesn't have a Mishkan analog and so on, or no, you're making furrows, you're again moving materials that you shouldn't be moving on the Sabbath, okay. So Rabbi Asher uh, ben Yechiel, the Rosh in number 33, who was born in Germany, studied with Mayor of Rothenburg, and was forced to flee Germany in 1304. Famous story. His teacher's dead nine years. His body is in jail. Uh, actually, 11 years at that point, but it's so bad he's got to go. He goes to Spain. He ends up in Toledo. He first spends some time in Provence, in northern Spain. Ends up in Toledo. He writes in Toledo, here everybody's sweeping. And his responsa, by the way, almost to a last one were produced in Spain, were produced in Toledo. Al-Kibud Habayit about sweeping. You should know, he says, in Ashkenaz and Sarfat, strictly prohibited. You're making furrows and so on. In this land, he says, though, they rely on Alfasi. It's a Spanish land. They've got Isaac Alfasi, who had a ruling to permit it. Velo milaani libi. He says, I didn't have either the temerity, the chutzpah, the guts. I couldn't say it's prohibited because they wouldn't listen to me. Right? And since, me'achar, it's a great line, they're hanging themselves on a big tree here. Right? In other words, if you want to hang yourself, hang yourself on a big tree, meaning if you want to rely on something, get, get a biggie, get some great authority. They are. I'll find great authority. Why should I make them mazy dim? Why should I make them purposeful, right? Per, you know, willful uh, uh, violators. Okay. What kind of mutav gim is this? Here's an Ashkenazic figure who's applying the Ashkenazic high-level mutav gim in Spain, right? They have someone to rely on. I think it's prohibited. It was prohibited all through the north. They've got Alfasi. You know, you can't, you can't just sneeze at that, right? So I will allow them to do it for that reason. Okay. We have Ritva in his novelet to tractate Shabbat at the very end. Right? Ritva also knows, We know that people didn't sweep the house on Shabbat or on Yom Tov in all of northern France, southern France, and Catalonia. So it's going from north to south. The non-sweeping epidemic has spread southward. But in our locale in Spain, he's a little bit south in Spain. We rely on the Rif. Right? So, so far, he and the Rosh are exactly in agreement on the facts. However, where Rosh says that's a cover for those people based on Mutav Shogim, the Ritva says they rely on him. That's okay, so it's permitted. There's not a problem here. Right? And he says, he gives all kinds of, here he gives all kinds of explanations, not mutafshu shogigim. He says, 
the dirt is not good for you, right? There are reasons to permit it from other directions, right? It becomes like human refuse, which you're allowed to remove on the Sabbath. So the Ritva doesn't say, it's okay, they're relying on the riff. He says, it's permitted, right? But then he says, at the very end, but this only allows sweeping in the house itself. People said, they took up sweeping. We'll now sweep the porch. We'll sweep the steps. We'll sweep the you know, entranceway outside the house. That's not allowed. The first thing is certainly allowed. The riff allowed it. The rush said, okay, they're relying on the riff. Ritva says, no, here in Spain, swell. But what about sweeping outside the house? Not permitted. The rabbi said, It's a prohibition to sweep outside the house. There's no allowance whatsoever. Ritva only knows from this low level, this lower level, people are doing the wrong thing. They won't easily listen. This is not the world's largest Sabbath violation, if we can say it that way for Ritva. Again, so the Ashkenazic trained decisor even though he's in Spain, is thinking type one, type two. Right? He's ready to make the Spaniards into Ashkenazim. The Ritva never heard of type one, neither did the Rashba, neither did the Ramban. What I'd like to conclude from here is, I think it's pretty obvious, there is a sense, and it's not just the rabbis being nice because there were opportunities for them to, to do this even more. The rabbis have this sense, as Professor Katz, I think, still correctly stated many years ago, and I'm my next book on uh, conversion or reversion of medieval Europe is about to attack my teacher, but that's because there were manuscripts he didn't have. So it's not an attack. It's a, uh, it's a friendly amendment, of course. He used to respond very strongly to his critics, even he was very active to a very late. And I asked myself, what would Professor Katz say? And the answer I was given is, I didn't have those manuscripts. I hope that's the right answer. But anyway, in this case, Professor Katz's words remain exactly correct. There is the sense amongst Ashkenazic rabbinic authorities that they are people do have a sense of what they can and can't do that's worth something. There's an awareness and there's a connection. There's this, uh, uh, you know, um, let me get a good English translation. There's this, this uh, you know, not just paying homage to the authorities, but there's really, uh, uh, you know, obedience to authority, um, which the Spanish rabbinic leadership, to a man, did not even, and they, they know this Ashkenazic material, so they want to borrow the categories. They can, it's all here. They don't, at any point that I found, begin to make that move. As such, two things. Number one, I think this is an important window into popular observance. I think it it has to be taken seriously. I think it also shows that there is a strong distinction between Northern Europe and Southern Europe. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, we're getting a bit late, so I think we should... We should have some questions, we can't just leave this without a bit of a discussion. So, um, let's just spend just at least a few minutes. I'm sure there are some questions people want to ask. If not... It was that uh, clear, okay. I can probably say lots of questions. Please. On your last bit, you said that the bayat, the rabbi said that the bayat was not permitted. Yeah. Was that correct? In other words, meaning the, the uh, ostensibly, and again, the the uh, 
ostensibly it's not because the stone porch and steps are paved and the house was, you know, whatever dirt was in area A was probably similar to area B, although the architecture has to be checked. The point being that since the permission, since the technical permission, and as for Edva, either it's permitted or it's prohibited, will we give the easement? What he's saying is the inside is permitted because Geraf Shorei, having the dirt accumulating is, uh, you know, if not literally malodorous as human waste might be, it's treated like uh, there's a, you know, we, we can ease some of the Sabbath restrictions on moving things to remove human waste or other unpleasant odors and, and so on and so forth. So this dirt in the house, you know, the problem of you sweep because it's not, not as clean as it should be. In the house, we can rely on that evaluation. What's outside the house, it's not, you know, again, we all want to be good homeowners, but that's not going to impede your Sabbath observance. If it's a little dirty outside, you can, you know, fix it tomorrow. You don't have to worry about it right now. That's, that's, I should give you the, I gave you the acronym. His full name is um, uh, Yom Tov, Rabbi Yom Tov, that's the Yud, Yom Tov ben Abraham. Um, interestingly, the Aleph could also be for Ibn Ishvili. He's from Seville at some point. The question is, he's probably not writing this in Seville, but he's, he is writing it somewhere below uh, Catalonian Arab. He's not in the north, he's in central Spain at this point. And normally people would have the designation of where they come from if they're outside that. Correct, correct, that's right. So that's, well, but again, he moved around, he, Ritva is a, is a man about all of Spain at some point. Yes, he did, he, yeah, no, he, right, he did not remain in the south, he came more north, but not in Barcelona, where his teacher, uh, Rash, his two teachers were in Barcelona. What is that? Uh, he dies around 1325. All right, so, yeah, okay. Um, the, these sources, the ones that you call the, the higher level, yeah. they give the people credit. Mm-hmm. Do your sources allow you to see what the line is between giving credit for what might be considered a, a, a deviant behavior without mm-hmm. getting into all the technicalities of what that is, and deviance that needs to be corrected, right. deviance that you right. can't give them credit for? Where, do, where can right. that line so be drawn? The, so the simplest line, I, I, you know, let, let, me, let me redraw it or, or underline it, the simplest line seems to be the Ashkenazic authorities, and they never name names because there are no names, meaning not that there were no figures, they don't know. But their assumption is that earlier rabbinic figures allowed it, or at least didn't stop it for considerations. In other words, the line that they, that they draw is things that were duly considered and have some justification, even though right now they think that justification doesn't <coughs> exist, right? Again, the assumption that even women ask questions, right? And they're giving the, the audience some credit for having some idea of where the, you know, of where the halachic line is, right? Um, and, and it's not just that the punishment isn't so great, because it was pointed out before, if the punishment is great, everybody says you have to get rid of it, right? So you've got the situation where, um, uh, and or, there was one case actually where uh, Ra'avan, Eliezer ben Nathan, says... I don't think anybody ever allowed this, so I'm applying the lower level of Mutav Shogun, because I could theorize, but I don't want to do that. So there's this some sense that the people have a, a, an awareness of what's happening, and again, what I'm assuming happened here, and, and the distinctions are very, are very clear, right? People are doing it, people are claiming earlier authorities allowed it, right? So there's some, there's some 
valence so here. So there's a, a notion that in these particular cases, if you were to ask the people about it, they right. would defend their practice. Right, they would self-report and say, but, but, you know, in other words, there's one case here where they say, our parents told us the rabbis allowed it. Not just our parents told us, because that's not sufficient, but, right, that seems to be at least an important part of the line. The other important part of the line is, again, on some of these jewelry cases, the Germans say, well, we don't allow it, but Rabbeinu Tam allowed it, and Rabbeinu Tam is of sufficient reputation, not just that he thinks well, but that could have filtered through. In other words, Rabbeinu Tam's stuff is not restricted to northern France. His stuff is, he's got German students, his stuff is ubiquitous. So again, there's some sense that something got through, you know, people have something to, something, what's your excuse, right? So if the people say, that's the way my mother did it, or my father did it, that might not qualify here, you know, even though people do that a lot, right? That might qualify for the lower brow. If there's some sense that rabbis allowed it, and not just, you know, like this, that's where these Ashkenazim employed. And again, if you look to a person, by the way, the number of cases, this should have been mentioned, the number of cases of higher level Mutav Shushokim and Ashkenaz far exceeds the lower level. That's an important point. In other words, uh, uh, the, the examples where they talk about rabbinic, you know, uh, potential or probable or possible rabbinic approbation, but we don't agree with it, are much more frequent than there isn't anything here, right? So in other words, it's not, it's, 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 it's much more than 50-50, you know? I mean, I didn't give you all the examples here, but it runs, I don't know, I'll say 70, 30, 80, 20. So, so the presumption is that a lot of these practices did have some type of prior approbation. Where it doesn't, they say, okay, we can't do anything about it. And that's, again, where they would say, try to fix it, right? Whereas in Spain, again, no two-tier system whatsoever. And what I'm suggesting is this is a very important window then on what, you know, this is not just the rabbis constructing it out of their, you know, imaginations here, out of their fertile minds. Because again, they seem to know when people, you know, or he says, my father was in that city and he indeed didn't protest. So, you know, in other words, there, there's too much personal knowledge here, even if we don't have precise knowledge. Yeah. Um. I had a question about the end of the line actions. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. have those two, two right. categories. Right. But at the end they they do the same, they just don't change anything, do they? Or what's Right, but that but that on? but that no, so that what I what I the, you know, what sort of you know, as I went through this material, the, the moment that I sort of thought that I might actually have an idea here is where Eliezer Ben Nathan himself makes this very interesting distinction based on the Talmud itself between two types of these categories, right? The dancing on the Sabbath and the eating before Yom Kippur. Eating before Yom Kippur, too close to Yom Kippur, eating before Yom Kippur, it's also a bit sad, but, uh, right? Eating up to the line, there's no way to explain that. It's habit. People do it. You can scream at them. They're never going to listen anyway. Uh, You know, so maybe you can say it in some elliptical fashion, but that popular custom has, you know, I don't mean no redeeming social value, but it doesn't, it just, it's just human behavior as it is, and, and they're sort of getting very close to a line. The dancing, all of a sudden, has reasons. So even though those reasons don't do it for the decisors themselves, mm-hmm. and by the way, just you get a sense, you say, well, maybe these Ashkenazic decisors are much stricter. Not necessarily at all, right? In fact, some of their allowances in economic matters, uh, in dealing with Christians, the Ashkenazim, uh, you know, northern French and Germans, even the northern French are a little, little more uh, uh, forthcoming here. They permit stuff that, that, you know, after them, everybody said, oh, they can do that, we can't do this. 
So we're not dealing with a particularly stodgy, you know, as these groups go, we're not dealing with a, you know, a bunch of reactionaries here in terms of, of, of you know, if you look at, as I say, some of the allowances, um, uh, you know, obviously in case of livelihood, in case of, of other things, um, in terms of, 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 you know, adjusting to the Christian environment and so on, uh, the Ashkenazim are, you know, the German pietists are the ones screaming, no, you can't allow that, right? The pietists, right? Not, not, not pious. Well, it's not the right word either there, but uh, the Ashkenazim here, these disguises are pretty, pretty with it in terms of, 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 of you know, what we'll call mitziyut v'halacha, adjusting or, 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 you know, deciding halacha in the face of shifting realities. So, so once you see that kind of distinction on a Talmudic level, it's, it's not surprising that it follows, but it's such an expansion that Talmud didn't say all of that. In other words, he's reading that into the Talmud because that fits what he sees within his people. I wonder whether this really tells us about what people did, mm-hmm. popular practice, mm-hmm. or whether it tells us more about the, the rabbis' wish to limit the scope for disobedience right. in their own right. minds. Right. Did they really believe that these women knew that Rabbeinu Tam or that somebody had said, or did they choose to believe it because that made it easier for them to cope with the situation fair, in which people are not obeying? Very, very fair question. A- again, this is not all the evidence. The, the, the number and variety of the cases of the rabbis, um, it's, it, listen, a conspiracy theory is always possible, but it would have to be a pretty big conspiracy theory here because the data of what the people are doing is very uh, closely done, and they seem to care about it. In other words, they, they, the fact that there are different expressions, right? He doesn't always say, they must have asked a question. He's got different ways of... All of them have different ways, and again, I focused on, on the top two or three people here. There are other people else. They, they, there are different ways of focusing, and if this was all constructed, they could have constructed it more. In other words, in other words, there are cases, you know, Isaac of Dompierre, for example, doesn't buy this. So if it's a construction, you'll say, well, he's, you know, he's, he's more realistic. Um, you know, if, if, if it's a construction, Construct all the way. The, the, the number and the nature of the nuances is precise, and that's and that's really my you know again, not my main purpose today. That's really my criticism of of of, um, of Marquiel's analysis. He doesn't talk about the Spanish side at all. You've got to set the two things up side by side and look at the differences. So what you're asking is, well, okay, so maybe the Ashkenazic rabbis are more quixotic. They're more they, they have better imaginations. They work very hard. You know, there, there's a lot of detail here and a lot of change phrases. And a lot of, of, of slotting and categories. Um, it seems that that would be an awful lot of work if there was no no uh, you, you know if, if they're going to imagine their, their 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 audience, they could have imagined their audience being much less complicated. I think, I, I'm not really convinced by huh? this. I mean, I um, isn't it natural that rabbis would try to appropriate popular <coughs> custom by giving it a Rabbinic Talmudic justification, or, or right, right, building some sort of right. theory, historical theory right. about the so, so but then, but, but then the question is, good. So then the question is, why do Ashkenazic Jew, why do Ashkenazic rabbinic figures have two categories? You know, just say it's all yeah. you know. And the Spanish rabbis who are schooled, Ritva and Ramban and Rajba, Nachmanides, Adret, and our new friend. Uh, Israeli, uh, 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 right? Um, about whom, by the way, Ritva is a figure. Um, uh, I actually have a student 
doing a dissertation uh, on some of his writing. Um, it's, it's, it's a gold mine, and nobody's touched it. Hardly, we've got so little written. Um, they know this move, to, they could make this move in a second. They could make this move in a half a second, if it's good. They quote the Tosafists on everything under the sun. Uh, if it wasn't sidely based, why aren't they, you know, if it's just a rabbinic, they could have had a much happier life here, you know? In other words, what do we got to say? Ah, the people are not being so good and all of that. Now, by the way, again, now kicks in, so now you'll say, well, why was Spanish society different? So, you know, uh, Bernard Septimus has this great phrase somewhere, the corrosive impact of philosophy. Ah, you know, it's hard to do it that way. But there are differences in terms of, uh, you know, again, it really cuts back to what's the, do we have other evidence for the relationship between the rabbinic elite and the more, uh, you know, sort of common folk? Again, there's other evidence that the rabbinic elite in Ashkenaz are not quite as far away from the people in terms of their own level. Uh, You have this fantastic... um, there's a fantastic uh, citation. It's a different realm, but but related. A fantastic citation by Yosef Ibn Chaviva. Namuke Yosef lived in the mid 13th century, uh, mid 14th century, I should say. And the Talmud, in one place in Tractate Brachot, speaks about students and teachers sort of fighting each other. The story of the the uh, Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, and they you know they they banned him and all kinds of you know going at it like this. And uh, Namuke Yosef, living after all of this, so he knows 13th century Spain, he says, the rules of engagement, as, these, as this Talmudic piece seems to suggest, you know, which this Talmudic piece seems to say, because, uh, you know, Rabban Gamliel was too hard on Rabbi Yoshua, they threw him out of the patriarchate, according to the Talmud, for a while. They gave him a, you know, um, they gave, suspended him for a while. He was there. So this, so the student obviously was, you know, had some, some some rights here. They took him to a, a an appeal, you know, to a kind of a court of inquiry, and the teacher didn't win. He says, these rules of engagement apply to northern Ashkenazic lands, where the students and teachers are on a very similar level. It's kind of like what we tell our students. You know, we sit on one side of the desk because we know a little more than you, but at a university level, right, we want, you know, so right, we want scholars. We want, in the Spanish world, however, in the Spanish realm, Christian Spain, you know, the teachers are here and the students are here. All right, so again, that may be his own lack of confidence, but there are all kinds of examples which suggest the gap is a smaller kind of a gap. Now, I also want to say, let us not think. Murderers, are not, murderers in Ashkenaz, there were. Saints in Svarad, there were. So this is not about that. The student now working on violence in Ashkenaz, taking some of the latest research on the other side of the doctoral student, and he, he wants to suggest, again, the claim is that the violence level in Ashkenazic society is lower than in the Spanish society. He wants to claim it's not true. So I said to him, you may be right, but here's the point. He's focusing on a number of manuscript texts. When you shine a, line on some, a, li- when you shine a light on something, it all of a sudden becomes very important. You know, it's very important. That's why we'll give you a dissertation if you do a good job, right? Doesn't mean, right, that it's now more or more important than it was before. So it's got to be done in comparison. And as I say, too much nuance here, I think, on the rabbinic side for it just to be covered. On both sides, on the Ashkenazic side, there's too much nuance. And the fact that Spain can't even, and they're right on these, they're on the same, it's not an argument from silence, because they know all the Ashkenazic tricks, they quote them. But they don't evaluate it in the same way. So there's evaluation here, too. Okay, good. I think okay. I think thank you very much. And, um...